Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. Twice a week, I would lose my stuff, like wallet, keys, phone, the essential things for walking out the door in the 21st century, right? Just gone. Not just misplaced, gone. One time I lost, I had a, a Jeep Cherokee at the time, we thankfully had two sets of keys, but I lost one of them at my parents' house. We didn't find them for three years. <laughs> Not joking. <laughs> I had sold the Jeep by the time I found the keys. I was so bad with it. Aaron would be so frustrated with me all the time, like, again? Really? Like, we'd be walking out the door, and you're, you just you can't for like 20, 30 minutes because you're looking for your stuff. Really, really life debilitatingly bad. And I started to say, God, what is wrong with me? <laughs> right? Like, why, why can't I remember where my things are? You have to fix my memory. It's bad. What is going on? And as I began to question God with that and really dig deep within myself, God began to reveal to me that it's actually not a memory problem. My problem, and maybe yours, if you are a chronic key loser, maybe yours is memory. But for me, it was something much deeper. The bad memory was actually just a symptom of something else going on in my life. And I, as I began to question God about that, he said, I, I, I can fix your memory problem, but I think you're going to regret that. Because your memory is actually the thing that causes you to be really good at forgiveness. Right? Anybody else like me where you get halfway through an argument and you forget why you're arguing in the first place? <laughs> I'm really good at forgiving people because I have a bad memory. And God said, be careful what you wish for, right? It's those that have a really good memory but have a tough time letting go of the past because that, that pain is still so fresh, so raw. They remember it. I just don't so I can forgive people very easily. God said, no, actually, uh, you need to fix the underlying cause of what's going on. And for me in my life, it was just laziness. I wasn't being intentional with where I put my things on the front end, and so I couldn't find them on the back end. I hadn't developed systems in my life. My wallet goes here, my purse goes here, my keys always go here. Instead, I just throw everything when I got home. Wherever I was, things would just willy-nilly go wherever, and then, of course, I'm not going to remember them later. It was a laziness problem, not a memory problem. And as I began to fix that, I started uh, putting a carabiner on my keys, and every time I got out of the car, they got hooked on my purse, and I took my purse whether I felt like it or not, right? Didn't leave it in the car because there was a chance that I would lock them in the car. It was bad. And when I got out of the house, they went in the same spot every time. Didn't matter if I was on the other side of the house and I didn't feel like getting up. I went and I put them back where they belonged. Everything needs a place, right? And it goes in its place. No matter how lazy I feel like being, I had to self-discipline, change my behavior on the front end because laziness now means chaos later. And the chaos is often our fault. Now, as we move into this today, I want to be sure I say very clearly, the bad things that happen to you in life are not always your fault. 
Because I can already hear some wheels turning like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have done that. These things happened to me, and it's all my fault. Well, not everything is your fault. In fact, we live in a messed up, fallen world where sometimes other people's sin spills over onto you through no fault of your own. But sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Hosea 8-7 puts it this way. They have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. The message version says it even more clearly. Look at them. Planting wind seeds, they'll harvest tornadoes. We tend to go around planting laziness and chaos is what we're harvesting. There's bigger examples of this than just keys, right? When I was a young adult, I didn't always handle my finances extremely well, as some young adults do, right? You get your paycheck, you wait a couple of days, you're too lazy to do the bills, and so you go and you swipe your card, swipe your card, go out to eat, buy some stuff, and then five, six days later, you're like, oh yeah, I should probably pay bills. Those are a thing. And so you sit down to pay the bills, and you're like, "Uh, where'd the money go? right? Whereas if you just budgeted, you made a plan. When you got paid, the money went toward bills, tithe, savings. They they planned it all out. You put it where it's supposed to go. You were diligent on the front end. On the back end, you still have money, right? There's sexual immorality. We do this too, right? It just happened. I don't know. It just happened. I don't know what what I could have done differently. Well, make a plan so that with your win, when you're in that situation, you already know what to do and you don't go further than you would have liked, right? Working out is one that just throughout this week I was very convicted about. We often only change our lifestyle of eating better and getting regular exercise after something goes very wrong. We all know we should, eat better, exercise more. That's really all you need to get healthier. Eat better, exercise more. It's just we're so lazy. Just can't bring ourselves to get up off the couch. We have time. We'll make time for what's important, right? We sow the wind and we harvest the whirlwind. We're couch potatoes, planting laziness and then wondering why things are crazy. Hosea is actually a really interesting book. It's a collection of 25 years worth of teaching and preaching and writing from the prophet Hosea. It's almost all poetry, actually, and you can see that sort of in in the word pictures that Hosea creates. At one point in the book, he uh, he's speaking for God, and and God says they're like, he's describing the nation of Israel, they are like They are worthless as half-baked cakes. (laughs) He's planting the wind and harvesting the whirlwind. He's good at these word pictures. It's almost all poetry. And the prophet Hosea was the first to prophesy the destruction of Israel. He lived during the time of the kings. The kings were ruling Israel badly, really badly. And he began to prophesy, look, guys, this is all going you know where we're headed here, right? God's going to bring destruction on you. And so you you can imagine how popular Hosea was in a nation full of people who are living it up, living their best lives, worshiping God and worshiping all these other gods, having these 
crazy parties worshiping their God and all the other gods. He wasn't an extremely popular guy, but Hosea, the the book of Hosea is, is really interesting for another huge reason. God called Hosea to marry a prostitute, and he did. Crazy story. Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute. It doesn't get much clearer than that. So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. Can you imagine how difficult? This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And you thought your calling was hard. Here was a guy called to speak doom and gloom over a nation that was living it up and having lots of fun. And then he had to marry a prostitute and live through that. And I I know what you're thinking, honestly, because I wrestled with the same questions as I studied this. How could a good God do that? How could a good God put his man, his guy, his prophet, through that misery, knowing full well what she would do. Some scholars think that this didn't actually happen, that that Hosea was just painting another word picture, that he was trying to illustrate the metaphor of Israel. Israel's the prostitute stepping out on their God to other gods, and that's what he's talking about here. Some scholars think that God said that because there literally was no one else. That was a nation full of prostitutes, at least in the metaphor sense. He couldn't have found anyone else if he tried. I don't know. Personally, I tend to think it happened. It actually literally happened as it was written. We're all called to do difficult things, to love difficult people, love the unlovable, to show kindness to those who aren't used to kindness to sacrifice yourself for others. I've been called to love difficult people too. So have you. We each have those people in our life that are just tough to love, and yet we're called to love them anyway. Some of us are the difficult person. Probably all of us at one point or another difficult to love. And here's where my thinking started to shift on this. Because I realized I am that person. So are you. And God loved me anyway. Why wouldn't he put a good guy in Gomer, that's his wife, in her life? Why wouldn't he call someone to love her when no one else would? That's the God I know. Because he did it for me. He did it for you. I'm glad our good God calls us to do difficult things, to love people. It's called incarnational ministry, right? He sends people as an answer to prayer. He sent Jesus in human form to love us so much, to sacrifice himself for us. I'm so glad that he did. Hugomer gave, if you can call it that, Hosea three sons, three children, two sons and a daughter actually, which may or may not have actually been his 
Hosea raised them as his own. She stepped out on him over and over, betrayed his trust, committed adultery, went into wild orgies of worshiping whoever, Asherah and Baal, right? This is what their life was. This is who Israel was at this point. And she participated willingly and happily. And for the first three chapters of this book, it's all about Hosea and Gomer and their children. The Lord describes the ways in which he will bring Gomer back to Hosea and the the humiliation she'll have to suffer, the punishments she'll have to walk through that she's bringing on herself. But then the tide begins to shift, as it always does with God. And he brings her back into right relationship with her husband. Verse Chapter 2, verse 14 says, But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there. She did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. Can you see the metaphor start to shift a little bit? The lines between whether we're talking about Gomer and Hosea or Israel and God start to get a little blurry here. Gomer didn't rescue, Hosea didn't rescue Gomer from Egypt. God rescued Israel. They're one and the same story. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. God is capable of punishments, but he doesn't want that for you. In fact, if you read through this book, he over and over says, I want to redeem them. They're making it impossible. I want to heal them, but they're making it impossible. He wants good things for you. He wants to partner with you in life, not just be your master, your slave driver. And so he's willing to go back for his people, just as he sent Hosea back for his wife. Hosea 3.1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Even though the whirlwind is at the front door, even when it seems like life has beat you up and torn you down and ruined everything you've worked so hard for, God is there. And he's calling you back to him. And if he has to use the whirlwind that you created for yourself, he will. He'll allow the chaos in your life if it'll bring you back into right relationship with him. He loves you enough to punish you. But he also loves you enough to save you from yourself when you're in repentance. Pain is the best teacher, right? The lessons we learn the hard way are the ones we remember the longest. The truth lying around on the surface isn't always believable because we didn't earn it. We didn't learn it the hard way. But when we learn it the hard way, we tend to remember it. I read a quote this week in a commentary as I was studying this that said, sin is the daughter of plenty and destruction the daughter of the abuse of plenty. I thought, maybe that's why God seems to take things Sometimes, sometimes, you know, all the appliances in the house go bad all at once and your car breaks down and just all the things in your life seem to start breaking down. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. 
Look, you're focusing too much on those things. You're getting your identity out of having the perfect house and the perfect car. All you need is me. Let me show you. Stop planting wind. You're going to receive the whirlwind. Lust, when conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when conceived, brings forth death. And God is trying to keep us from that, to shield us from ourselves. If he has to allow us to experience some of the consequences of our own sin, he will, to bring you back to him. Now, Hosea isn't a long book. It's 14 kind of short chapters. And and I would encourage each and every one of you to go home and, and just read through it this week. There's so many little nuggets in there that are hidden within. Just allow me to pull out just a couple today. Because I think Hosea's ultimate goal in writing this book and God's ultimate goal in including it in the word is to prevent the whirlwind in your life. To prevent the chaos. That maybe if you can learn your lesson the easy way by looking at the example of others, you won't have to learn it the hard way. So, Just a couple of ways to avoid the whirlwind that I think we can pull out of this book. You know, Israel wasn't physically lazy. They were worshiping multiple gods. It wasn't easy. In fact, worshiping God alone wasn't all that easy back then. They had to jump through all the hoops, go through all the sacrifices, and they did the same for Baal and Asherah. It wasn't a physically lazy lifestyle. It was a spiritually lazy lifestyle. Last week, Jason talked to us a little bit about being physically lazy and how a potato just sitting on the shelf is wasted potential, that God wants to use us for something, and physically we have to get off the couch, right? Israel was off the couch physically, but they allowed a lot of spiritual laziness into their life, and people complain a lot about the church and how we talk a lot about money right? It's one of the biggest complaints from Americans about why they don't attend church. All they want is my money. It's why people leave churches a lot. I've never quite understood that because God only asks for 10%. You can give above and beyond that and he will bless you, certainly, but sin costs a lot more than 10%. A lot more. It's expensive. And the more You give it, the more it wants to take from you. God never asked for more and more and more. He asked for 10%. That's obedience. If you want to give more than that, he will bless you because he is a generous God. And the closer you get to him, the more you want to be generous too, but he'll bless you back for it. Sin is the more expensive master. So here's a couple of ways to avoid the whirlwind, to ruthlessly police ourselves, to self-discipline ourselves, as I did with my keys, right? To start building habits and systems into your life to deal with the sin before it gets a hold of you and enslaves you. The Bible calls it dying to yourself and taking up your cross. A couple of ways. Number one, we actually see it in chapter 8 of Hosea, verse 11. Israel has built many altars to take away sin, but these very altars become places for sinning. Church is not a safe zone from sin. I hope that's not big news 
to any of you here. In fact, the other main complaint against the church is the people, right? God's all right. I'm okay with him, but the people, goodness, they don't act like Christians. Right? We think that if we just come to church, we're somehow inoculated against it, that we get a vaccine once a week, and then we, we don't have to worry about it the rest of the week. The church isn't a safe zone, and it's not a vaccine. In fact, no one is safe from sin. The minute you think you are, you're actually sinning. It's called pride. <laughs> and it's what the church struggles with a lot. We think we're better. We know more. And so the world must be wrong and beneath us. Instead of thinking, I could never do that. How could anyone do that? How could, how could you allow yourself to murder someone or do these crazy heinous sins that we see on Law & Order SVU? Like, how could you allow yourself to get there? We should always be thinking, if not for Jesus, that would probably be me. If not for Jesus, I could easily go there. Murder, sexual immorality, theft, lying, we're never that far away from any of it. One thought that we allow to get out of control, to spin its web in our mind. One thought that we don't take captive and, and push away. One thought that we allow to snowball into a fantasy. A place that we go in our minds over and over and over. One Emotion that we allow to get out of control. One impaired thought, one drunken moment. It could be any of us at any time. Sometimes I think we view church as this vaccine from sin. It's actually here too. <laughs> the, we just switch out one sin for another. You know, I'm not out there, you know, doing drugs. Sure, but you're in here gossiping, so... Right? I'm not out there killing people. It's not like I've ever killed anyone. Okay, but you're harboring hate. Jesus said there's no difference. You're allowing yourself to wish evil on another person. You're rejoicing in other people's pain. How is that different? You can't swap out sins. In fact, Jesus said there is not one bigger than another. It's all evil in our souls. And we get to this point where we think, God, why can't you just wipe out the evil in the world? Why can't you just come down and, and make everybody pay? Why can't you just fix the evil? The problem with that line of thinking is the evil isn't just out there. It's in here, too. And the second we think it is only out there, we get on our high and mighty horse. But, but it's pride. It's sin just like the rest of it. It'll cause you to get off track and not see the one true God. Couch potatoes use church as an excuse to not develop spiritually, to not address the sin issue going on inside of us. Well, you know, I go to church every week. I give. I serve once in a while. So I, I don't need to open my Bible during the week. I'll just hear the sermon on Sunday. I'll just let her Bible reading be my food for the week. It's not enough. And if you don't look deeply enough into why we do what we do once in a while, you're going to eventually use it badly. And we have created systems around here to try to prevent people from using the functions of the church badly. In fact, I hope that Freedom Valley is becoming a place where if you're not developing spiritually, you're a little uncomfortable. 
because it's not meant to be a vaccine. It's meant to be inspiration, to push you out to do your own research, to do your own asking why. That's why we explain communion every time we take it. Why do we take communion? Is it just a magic pill meant to take this in a way and, and not, that means I don't have to do any work, right? I just take the communion and then I can go out and do what I want. It washes me clean. No, actually. We take communion because forgiveness is costly. We have to remind ourselves of the amazing, expensive price Jesus paid for our forgiveness and be willing to pay it for others. Be willing to forgive when people don't deserve it. If we can remember his sacrifice, we'll be more willing to do that for other people, to love them when they're unlovable just like Jesus did for us. Why do we get baptized? This is actually one that we've literally created systems to help people not just use it as another religious hoop to jump through. People coming in from other religions often think, if I just get my kid baptized, they're good, right? Free ticket to heaven. I don't have to come to church. I don't have to talk to them about the Bible. It's a free ticket. Well, no, it's not a magic ceremony. It gets you a free ticket to heaven. It's to remember that when you get dunked in that water, the old has gone. You've died with Jesus. You've crucified yourself on that cross with him. And when you're raised again out of the water, it's a new life with him. It's meant to be a marker in your life that says, I'm not going back to that person I was before. I'm a new person in Christ. I now live with his purposes and goals and ideas for my life, not my own. And we remember why we're doing what we're doing it's much more easy to see that church is not meant to be hoops to jump through. It's meant to bring us and remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Why are we told to share our faith? Is it to just grow the church? We're supposed to be growing, right? Is it to just jump through the hoops? Or is it to just get people to behave better? If I can just bring my kid to church, they'll naturally change, right, without any work on my part. That was for somebody. I'm sorry. I felt that one. Is it to earn brownie points with the pastor? Look, I brought somebody with me today. Or is it because we love people enough to share the freedom and hope that we found with others? Jesus paid the price and gave us forgiveness free of charge. It means we have to pay it for other people. Love them when they don't deserve love, just like Hosea and Gomer. Why did God call Hosea to endure marriage with a prostitute? Maybe it's a metaphor, right? Maybe he's just a vindictive guy up in the sky who loves torturing us humans for his own enjoyment. Or maybe it's because God loves Gomer too. Enough to send someone into her life to love her. Like Jesus loved us. Like God loves us. Like he's willing to sacrifice his own safety because we trample all over his feelings constantly. He's willing to love us that much. Look, I didn't come to these conclusions easily. I never do. I don't have a Bible degree or theology degree to fall back on. I'm working on it. But it... That's not where this knowledge comes from. It literally comes from asking why. 
and not allowing my doubts and my fears to continue to be doubts and fears. To really ask why. I've, I've trained myself over years because if I'm going to be honest with you, I, I think that I would naturally fall back into the person that I was growing up. This scared, shy, ruled by fear little girl. Very quickly, if I gave this up, and by this I mean studying the word deeply. Just last night I had this moment before service where I was like, God, can I just stay back here? I was in the sound booth. <laughs> can I just not challenge myself for once? Can I just, I'll still serve, I'll stay back here, push buttons, I'll control things. Like this is where I want to naturally be. It's fun back there in the booth. And I don't have to be up in front of people. It's where I naturally want to be. But God said, even though that's a good calling, it's not yours. Yours is to be up there. Push yourself. Show people that they can be more than they are naturally because of his word. Not because of anything I've done, but because I've trained myself to ask the word why. And to use it more than just a... I think for a while I even read my Bible incorrectly. <laughs> you would think that wouldn't be possible, like as long as you're reading it. <laughs> it's good. But in fact, you can do things Jesus tells you to do without his heart and still be wrong. And I think for a while I woke up in the morning, I thought to be a good Christian, I need to get 10 minutes of Bible in or I need to get a chapter in a day. I need to read my Bible every day. And so I just go through the motions, check in the box. Okay, great. Wake up, read my chapter. I'm done, right? I'm good. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to wrestle with it. I don't need to allow it to change my life. As long as I read it, I'm good. But now, it's more like I binge on the word. I, I consume it for a day straight, and then I think about it for a week straight, and I wrestle with it, and I question it, and I ask God why. I discuss it with myself in my head. I discuss it with God. I discuss it with people around me. Like, why do you think Hosea had to marry a prostitute? Why would God do that? What's going on there? Until I figure it out. Until God reveals the truth to me. Because truth just lying around on the surface is not easily remembered. But truth I have to dig for. I'll remember that one. Oh, this week. <laughs> in the most unholy place possible. I mean, I was literally eating a taco from Sheets while driving just to be real honest with you. It was not a holy moment. But in that moment, I was driving on the way to church on Wednesday night, and I went, oh! Aaron goes, what's wrong? I was like, oh, I just had a revelation about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. He was like, are you even studying that right now? I was like, no. But I've trained myself for a while now to think deeply about the word. We, you know, we can, I was listening to a neuroscientist, um, Caroline Leaf, look her up and watch her videos. She's amazing. She's a Christian, South African neuroscientist. And she says that you can, she believes that you're actually as intelligent as you want to be, that you can develop your mind and grow your mind. It didn't used to be widely believed, but now scientists have proven that even though you were born with an IQ of a hundred, you can grow that. You can flex your brain muscle and grow it become smarter than you were born with. You can improve upon the hand you were dealt with biology. 
I believe the same is true of the word. We often use these excuses like, I just don't understand it. I'm just not good at reading. I just don't, I don't like to read. I'd rather hear your interpretations of it. It's a couch potato mindset. It's laziness. You can, if you want to, understand the word. God's truth isn't that far hidden, that far removed from you. Put work into it, he will reveal it to you. Little by little, step by step, consistently. Don't expect to be a theologian in a day, but work at it. Stop making excuses. That's actually number two. Church is not a vaccine is number one, and stop making excuses. Hosea 8.12 says, even though I gave them all my laws, they act as if those laws don't apply to them. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? We always act like the rules apply to everyone else. We love God's grace when it applies to us. Don't really like when it applies to the person that hurt us. We want his wrath poured out on others, but we'll take the grace, please. When we get caught, it's every excuse in the book. When I used to lose my keys all the time, it was always, well, you moved them, right? Where'd you put my stuff? How dare you? It was me, my laziness that lost them in the couch cushions. They didn't put them where they were meant to go. Or, you know, I had a lot on my mind, you have to understand. Well... Always have a lot on your mind because you're always losing your stuff. How long are you going to use that excuse before you change? Couch potatoes use excuses. Christians don't. We don't get to pick and choose who we love. We love everyone. We don't get to pick and choose who we harbor hate for. We don't get to ask God to love us unconditionally and not love others unconditionally. We don't get to be lazy. We don't get to be drunk all the time. We don't get to just let loose and vent sometimes. Pretend the rules don't apply to us. We're called to something higher. Better. Knowing the laws, knowing the word, and happily being obedient to it are two different things. If there's a particular law, boundary, fence that God has placed that you don't particularly like? How about researching why God put it there in the first place? How about understanding deeply why God wants to do this in your life? It's not because, and I promise you you're going to come to this conclusion, it's not because he hates you or doesn't want you to have fun. Because he wants to protect you, give you a good life, fulfill all of those cravings with healthy things, godly things. So that you can be sustained for the long term, not just have fun in the moment and then deal with the chaos, the whirlwind after. Number three, look for the root. Hosea 10, 13 says, but you have cultivated wickedness and harvested a thriving crop of sins. You've cultivated wickedness. You've planted a seed of wickedness. You've tended that garden. You've protected that small plant. You've fertilized that thing. You've weeded the garden around it. But you're not pulling up the root of wickedness. And so now you're harvesting a thriving crop of sins. You know, I have this 
theory, I guess it's more than a theory now, it's a deeply held belief that under every topical sin, there's something deeper, something deeper. And I believe there's three uh, roots to sin, three causes underlying sins. I believe they're pride, lust, and greed. And this is actually confirmed in 1 John 2, 16. It says, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. It's greed, lust, and pride. And then there's these, all these topical sins above that, right? We can lie out of lust to, to cover up a pornography addiction, to cover up a, a affair, right? Or we can lie out of greed because we've stolen something and we have to lie to cover it up and lie again to cover up that one. Or, or we can lie out of pride to just make ourselves look better in the eyes of others, right? Topical sins that actually cover something much deeper, when we allow ourselves to get away with excuses. Well, I only lied because, or I only did that because you have to understand we're not asking ourselves, why did I behave that way? Why did I allow myself? Why, what, what am I covering deep down within? Craving physical pleasure, for example, is not only a sexual thing. It can also be a desire to be drunk all the time. Right? To chase that high. It can be a desire to never be alone, for example. To surround ourselves with people. Because to be alone might mean we have to confront some things in our own mind. We, we don't want to be alone. And so we collect these people in our lives that will just hang around. And they may not be the best people for us, but at least we're not alone. Craving. Craving, craving. This life is full of cravings. This human nature, this flesh comes with a lot of cravings. Can you believe that they can all be met by God in a healthy way? Do you actually trust that really deeply? Because it will be tested. The second you walk out these doors today, probably, yet it'll be tested. You'll be offered something you know you shouldn't do. Right? You know it's outside of what God wants for you. And yet, I don't know if God can fulfill that in a healthy way. I need to go take care of this. Like, do you actually trust that God will have a better life partner in mind for you than anyone you would choose without consulting him? Do you actually trust that God wants you to have fun, to have friends, and he can provide you with better than the ones you might be choosing outside of his will? Now, if you would say yes to any of those kinds of questions, and yet you're still allowing situations in your life that may not be his ideal, you're lying to yourself. You don't actually trust God, that he has better in mind for you, that he wants the best for you. We have to start examining the things that we don't like and start looking for the underlying cause. Stop allowing excuses in our life and look for the root. Now, up until now in the sermon, I feel like I've given you a lot of bad news. <laughs> Convicted. <laughs> Said a lot of difficult things, right? And we're all walking out of here like, oh, I stink. Here's the good news. God allows the whirlwind to affect us 
to bring us back to him. He doesn't want you to stay there. He loves you there, but he doesn't want you to stay there. Hosea 2.6 says, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. This is God talking. And in this context, it was still the metaphor. It was about Gomer and bringing her back to Hosea and how God was going to plant thorns along her path. I think a lot of us experience the thorns. We bump into them sometimes. We think, I'll just go a step a little bit outside of God's will. And then, oh, ouch, pain, right? I'll just I'll step a little bit over here outside. Oh, ouch, pain, right? And we bump the whole way down the path. How bloody do you have to be to repent? How many times do you have to endure the pain to just walk the straight line, the, the path that God has set out for us? Some of us, we eventually get numb to the pain. We just dive in the bushes. It's all in. <laughs> if it hurts, I might as well keep going. We just keep getting bloody. Why? Why do we do that to ourselves? And, uh, a lot of times I think we, we medicate the pain away, right? We think, I don't want to experience that, so I'm just, I'm just going to get drunk and forget. I'm just going to medicate the pain away. I'm going to turn off those pain receptors in my brain and keep going, and we get more and more bloody the farther we get into it. I think we're actually meant to feel the pain, allow the pain to drive us back to the middle of the path, well within God's will. Allow the whirlwind to bring you back to him. You know, the further I get in my faith and relationship with God, the more I can see I'm never going to fully and completely conquer my sin nature. It will always be there. I'll always have those moments where I want to hide I'd rather not go through the difficulty of challenging myself to something I know God has called me to do. I'd rather life be easy for a while. Those things are beyond my control, but the one thing I can control is how quickly I repent. How quickly I move back onto the path that is good and straight and narrow for me that's thornless. It's how quickly I get back on track. The sin will always be there. The cravings will always be there. But how quickly can you get them under control? The more mature you get in your faith, the more you move toward Jesus, the more the path gets easier. Hosea 2.16, we read this earlier. You will call me my husband instead of my master. I wrestled with this one, too, because it brought up all these feelings of submission and, you know, who's supposed to be in control. And my husband, instead of my master, what are you saying there, God? But I've come to the conclusion that I think it can be said as God is my partner, not my slave driver. That he partners with me in life. Jason talked about the yoke earlier and how it's easy and light. And I think that's because Jesus is on the other side of that yoke. You know what a, a yoke is, right? Saddling two oxen together to pull the load together. You don't have to pull the load together uh, alone. <laughs> Jesus wants to pull it with you. He makes it easy and light because he's walking beside you. He wants the best for you. 
We don't have to call him my master, my slave driver. We don't have to hang our heads and, yes, I'll obey if I have to. Right? It's torture, but whatever. He wants to partner with us. He wants to make life good for you. When you can see that, you're much more likely to want to please him, not because he could punish me, but because he has blessings on the other side for me. I trust him. He's got my back, right? Hosea 7.13 says, I wanted to redeem them, but they have told lies about me. They do not cry out to me with sincere hearts. Instead, they sit on their couches and wail. I didn't even know this book had a couch in it when I started reading this. I kid you not. That's not divine appointment. They sit on their couches and wail. As couch potatoes, we do this. Sit on our couches and wail, God, how dare you? How could you? I'm in my pity party, right? Everything's bad, and I don't know what to do, and I'm just going to sit here and stump my feet and cry. If we cry out to him with sincere hearts, sincere hearts, meaning I know I messed up. I'm willing to own that. I can see where I went wrong. And I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to get up off the couch. I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to trust you, obey you. He wants to redeem you. That's what he wants for you. There's a whole bunch of these statements in this book. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1 says, I want to heal Israel, but its sins are too great. He wants redemption. He wants healing for us. We're standing in his way because we're sitting on the couch and wailing. Hosea 14 is actually the last chapter of this book, and it's titled Healing for the Repentant. Because God's not going to leave us in the punishment forever. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Assyria cannot save us, nor can our war horses. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. The Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Oh, Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. Let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. God's ultimate goal is to protect you. And the best way to do that is right standing relationship with him, partnership with him, trusting that he's got your back, 
He wants better for you than you want for yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. Trust his words over your life. He created you. Why would we not trust him? Well, often what happens, what keeps us from true repentance is the fear of judgment. We think if I admit this, everyone will hate me. If I admit this, God will smite me. When actually the opposite will happen. True repentance is our salvation, not our judgment. God wants to bring you to that so that he has something to work with, so that he can heal you from the inside out, truly and deeply. Unroot that thing in your life. Pull it out from the roots. And we were created to worship. Each and every one of us is worshiping something, whether you're aware of it or not. Be aware of it. Stop being spiritually lazy and allowing yourself to be asleep. Wake up, oh sleeper, the Bible says. Stop allowing yourself to be lulled to sleep. Not in control of your actions. Allowing your heart to worship selfish things. Worship the one true God of heaven who wants the best for you. I'm not saying it's a necessarily easy life, but it's better. So much better. Now, and I'll end with this. I mentioned briefly earlier that Hosea and Gomer had three kids and how hard that must have been. They had a son first and God told them to name him Jezreel because that was where God's punishment was going to be rained down on Israel. It was a valley that most of them thought they could win any battle in. And yet it was in that very valley that God brought the destruction. He brought the pain, the punishment, the judgment for all of their sins. And their son was named that, meaning God's punishment. The second child Gomer had probably not Hosea's, by the way. God told Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which literally means not loved. It was a metaphor for God not loving his people because they weren't loving him, that they weren't receiving God's love anymore. They couldn't see it. The third child they had was a boy. And God instructed Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Because God's people weren't acting like God's people anymore because they were choosing to give themselves to other gods instead of the one true God. Gods they made with their own hands. Gods that gave them an excuse to have wild orgies and and sacrifice their children and, and all kinds of evil behavior. That's the state in which these children were born into. Judgment and pain and punishment. Not loved and in right relationship with God, not his people. And again, I said, God, how could you? How could you name beautiful, innocent children who didn't deserve the nation they were born into? How could you name them with a curse? And God reminded me, those children were born with a curse on their lives just like you. 
born into sin. Born with proclivities and sin natures toward things that you don't deserve because of your parents' sin natures and their parents' sin natures. You were born with things you didn't deserve as well. Born into a, a culture you don't deserve. Through no fault of your own, you've been handed some things. They were born with curses. Just like you. But the amazing thing about this story is that before they were even born, God was already planning their restoration. He named them those things so that he could change their name later. Lo, Ami became my people. Ami, my children, the children of the living God. Lo, Ruhama became Ruhama, the ones that I love. And Jezreel became the place where their salvation came through Jesus. So at this place, there is judgment at the hand of God. And at this place, there is restoration to the hand of God. He is already planning your restoration before you were even born. Yes, we've been born with a curse. Yes, we've been born with sin natures. Yes, we've been handed things we didn't deserve, but God's already planning a way out. He is a way maker. He makes a way where there is no way. He's been planning your restoration from the beginning because he loves you that much. We can't always see the restoration plan, but it is there. He's planning your restoration, just like he was planning those children's restoration, just like he was planning the restoration of Israel. And that through Israel, we've all been saved. Jesus Christ was sent as a Jew in Jerusalem to die on a cross, not just for the Jewish nation of Israel, but for each and every one of us forever. Before they were even born, God was planning their restoration and he's doing the same for you. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Thank you that it's useful. It's useful to teach us, to correct us, to guide us into all truth, that you want us not asleep, but awake, aware of what we're doing to ourselves so that we can fix it. God, I pray that you would wake us up today. Allow us to be aware of the wind seeds we're planting so that we can stay away from the whirlwind later. God, convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Allow us to release the guilt where we need to release the guilt and walk in freedom. Bring us back into right relationship with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. I was taking some notes on this uh, message and that idea of, of planting a whirlwind just resonated with me maybe because like I, I don't know I'm a big Jurassic Park fan 
And there's that scene where he explains chaos theory, all about how like bird flaps its wings, and then that's just crazy that that the smallest change will lead to a whirlwind later. Like we can we can make tornadoes with our actions, and every small decision matters. Like we we start to think like I don't need to today. What is it going to matter if this just little thing? But we're planting for ourselves whirlwinds. That's huge. You know, uh, Candace said something, laziness now leads to chaos later. That's crazy. Laziness la now leads to chaos later. Like we think if we procrastinate, we'll deal with it later. You know, I, I have a joke with uh, the youth students. They'll be like, are you gonna take care of that? I'll be like, no, nah, that's future Jason's problem. And, and uh, future Jason hates past Jason because he just plants whirlwinds for us. So let's. Let's apply this lesson this week. Not like just let this lie here and, and, and leave it. Being lazy. I love alliteration. Um, let's, let's apply this to our lives. Make the small decisions that are necessary to prevent future pain. Yes, pain's the best teacher, but God doesn't want. It's another thing she said. God doesn't want to inflict that pain on us. He wants us to prosper. But we're going to plant for ourselves what we're going to reap. So the little choices this week, when we wake up, let's pray. When we go to bed, let's rest in God's word. Let's build for ourselves a positive future. Let's stand up before we go from here. I want to remind you, there's going to be prayer team available here at the front of the stage. Uh, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, stop by the I'm in table. You can text the number on the screen behind me. Uh, let's pray to seal this word on our hearts before we go from here. Father, I thank you that that you bring us back together, that your whirlwind guides us back to you, that you are always working to redemption. That's who you are, Lord. So I ask that we would begin even now to make the small steps to set ourselves up for future success instead of the pain that we have wreaked in the past. You are good and you are gracious and you will change our situation. So I ask, work all things together for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching with us, guys. We'll see you next week.